Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast, riding the rodeo of religion and life. It's great to have you here today. I'm Steve. I'm the host of this podcast. You know, the purpose of this podcast is to cover all different kinds of ideas as they uh, relate to life and religion. And here's the good news. We have passed the 5,000 download mark, 5,000 downloads, 5,000 people have listened to this podcast, which, you know, in the great scheme of things, isn't much. I mean, some podcasters, uh, they get 5,000 downloads with uh, just one episode, if not 10 times that amount. But, you know, for a guy sitting in an office with a little white microphone speaking to a congregation of a couple hundred people, I'll take these 5,000 downloads. And I want to thank all of you who listen to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for joining me here on the journey. I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope that you're sharing this podcast with other people, trying to get the good news out. Also, if you have things that you would want me to talk about, shoot me a text, an email, leave a Facebook uh, message, something to let me know what it is that you want to hear or hear me talk about. All right. You know, the tagline for the podcast is uh, Riding the Rodeo of Religion and Life. Well, today we're going to be riding the rodeo of religion and life to the full extent because I want to talk about the forgiveness of student loans today. Ever since President Biden uh, announced the forgiveness of student loans, man, there's been a hotbed of controversy. I've had people on all sides of the political aisle uh, expressing their feelings for and against it. You know, in the church, there's been a split. I mean, not so much here at Columbine, although people have shared with me their different opinions, but people in religious news magazines and articles and blogs, people are just like all over the place in the church on their belief on student loan forgiveness. Now, some of you might think, Why should the church get involved in a political social topic such as student loan forgiveness? You know, I say that it should get involved in a student loan uh, conversation because, you know, it goes back to what we say about Columbine United Church. We're a place where faith and life meet. If forgiving student loan is a topic of life, then we deal with it. It should be something that we apply our faith to, you know. So let me start by making this personal. Um, Student loans. I had huge student loans to pay for my education. You know, my parents took out loans for my undergraduate degree. They paid those loans off over the years. Um, I'll never forget when my mother called me years, years after I graduated. Like, I don't know, 15 years after I graduated, she called and said they had finally paid off my student loans. You know, it took a lot of dedication and sacrifice and commitment on their part to pay off my undergraduate loan. And then, you know, I took out a massive loan to pay for my Master's of Divinity degree. It took me years and years to pay off that loan. Combined with my wife's student loan for her graduate degree, we carried that financial burden for at least 15 years. I'll never forget how we celebrated when we paid off our student loans. You know, again, like my own parents, it required a lot of commitment and sacrifice to pay off the loans. You know, we didn't do a lot of things because we couldn't afford them because of our student loan debt. Now, maybe you're in the same situation. Maybe you took out a huge student loan to pay for your undergrad or grad work, 
Or uh, you took out a loan to pay for your child's education. You might have sacrificed to pay it off like I did or like my parents did. Or it could be right in the middle of paying off a student loan. It's a huge burden for you. And the thought of having it forgiven might be a huge relief. We're all over the place on student loans. You know, and even if you didn't take out a student loan, it's an issue for you because your taxes are going to finance this debt relief. I read that the estimated cost to do this project is $1 trillion to pay off the student loans. That's a chunk of money that we just, just shouldn't breeze by. So we're all over the map. Some people feel as though if they've sacrificed to pay off loans, why shouldn't this new generation do the same? They took out the loan. They need to work to pay it off. Why should we, the taxpayer, carry the burden? You know, all these are good questions and good feelings that people have. But, you know, as a person of faith, I identify myself as being a Christian. You know, I just can't willy-nilly allow my gut reaction to guide my public actions. So, like, I have a gut reaction about... Uh, the student loans and how I might feel that they should be paying off their student loans because I paid off my student loan, my parents paid off their student loans. You know, I might have a gut reaction to that. But as a person of faith, as a Christian, I can't just allow my knee-jerk reaction to guide my actions. No, as a person of faith, every time there's a social issue, I've social, God, i got to talk. Every time there's a social issue, I first turn to my uh, traditions, especially the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament. I want to read and study to guide my response. You know, my alliance with the kingdom of God always supersedes my alliance as a citizen of the United States. I'm first a Christian, then I'm American. If the two are in conflict, personally, I always side with my faith. So, what does faith have to say about loans and the forgiveness of loans? You know, I think, um, I think it has a lot to say, especially the Bible has a lot to say, and a lot of it comes from the Hebrew Bible. And so um, I want to dive in and talk about the economics of the Hebrew people and the loans that they had, uh, had to incur, and then what if anything, does that apply to our own situation? So, now, I want to give you a mini-lecture about the socioeconomic base of the ancient Hebrews. So, you got to be careful. Don't allow your mind to wander. If you need to, if you find yourself drifting, go back on your phone and hit the back button, uh, the 30-second back button to catch up so you can follow what I'm about to say because this is might be new material for you, but this is kind of like a mini lecture. I've got my notes right here in front of me, so let me dive in. Okay, when we talk about the economics of the Hebrew Bible, we need to remember their economics was radically different than ours. Uh, they were an agrarian society. As such, their economy was based upon trade and barter. But uh, they were quickly moving into a cash economy where goods were traded for a money exchange. There were taxes that had to be paid, but those were paid in crops, like the first cutting of your crop went to pay your taxes. But then there developed a cash economy 
where the average Israelite, instead of having to donate their crops to pay their taxes, they had to raise a crop and they had to sell it as a cash crop. And that was what they used to pay their taxes, their taxes and their life support, their family, feed their family, uh, keep their land, pay for the livestock, everything was through that cash crop. So this movement from trade and barter, barter to a cash economy grew. As it grew, there developed an economy of loans and debts. You know, farmers were dependent upon the whims of many things to ensure the well-being of the crops. You know, just like farmers today, they had to face weather, insects, fertilization, all different kinds of things to bring about a healthy crop. You know, the, uh, the geography of Israel was fraught with droughts that plagued the farmers. In addition, there were locusts, all different kinds of bugs and insects that could uh, rue the ruin uh, a crop. So then the farmer had to face, face the weather. Then on top of the weather was the heavy taxation due to the king. The book of 2 Kings tells the story of King Solomon and his heavy taxation to build his palace, the temple, and the city of Jerusalem. He used what is called corvée labor. Some of you, that might be a new term for you. Corvée labor is where the peasant farmer was forced off his land to work to cut and haul stone for the palace. It was forced labor. Corvée labor is forced labor by a king or an emperor, somebody in power, where they are forced off their land to work in slavery to build buildings, the empire, infrastructure, on and on and on. So the former Israelite was the farmer, the peasant farmer, was forced off their land for up to six months a year to cut stone, haul stone, to build the, build the palace. The key thing, it took him off his farms where he needed to be present to raise his crops, not only feed his family, but to pay his taxes to the king who had just taken him off his land. So it served as a double pincher of sorts, if you could see my fingers right now. I'm moving them like a, a pincher of a crab's claw. There was pinchers pushing them together that pinched the farmer. There was the, the forced labor is one claw of the pincher, and then the heavy taxes that the Israelite farmer had to pay, and those pinchers squeezed the farmer economically into a place of poverty. Now, more often than not, if there was a drought year or if they were off their land for too long because of corvée, the farmer couldn't pay his taxes. And the only way to avoid losing his land was to take out a loan from a wealthy businessman who lived in the city. And the wealthy businessman would make the loan in cash to the farmer. The only collateral that the farmer had for the loan was his property. To pay his loan, the farmer had to have good weather, a full crop, and the hopes that the king wouldn't take him off his land for forced corvée labor by the king. So it's interesting when you stop and think about it that things haven't changed all that much. Just ask a contemporary farmer and how they also take out loans to pay their taxes and needs of their uh, farm or ranch, with the only collateral being their property. So go back to the average Israelite, the peasant farmer. Invariably, one of the two pinchers squeezed the farm. Either bad weather, forced labor, or both. 
due to either one, the farmer would default on his loan. He was forced to either go deeper in debt or the wealthy businessman foreclosed on the loan. The farmer had one of two options, to work the land as a slave or to move off the land into the city to work in slums around the major city centers. Now, a key point to remember in all this is that the land in the ancient Hebrew society belonged to Yahweh God. The land was sacred. The land was an inheritance from God to the farmer. It was a sacred ownership that was passed down from generation to generation. Key point. To lose the land because of a default on a loan was to lose the inheritance from God. It was not only an economic crisis to lose the land, but it was a spiritual crisis as well. All right, hopefully you're beginning to see this. Israelite farmer, corvée labor, taxes, pinchers that squeeze them together. Now, in the midst of all this, situation of economy comes the prophet of Israel. The prophets of Israel like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, they uh, saw the economic devastation to the poorest of the poor, the average farmer, but they all saw the spiritual crisis that it caused. People were losing their land and their relationship to God. Their prophets were outraged by the system. The prophet Amos was uh, one of the largest voices against this system. He called out the wealthy who were financing their wealth by taking the land of the farmer. Amos blasted the wealthy who were adding, quote-unquote, property to property, farm to farm to their wealthy land holdings. Amos called these wealthy people, I love this, fat cows. The prophets called for a new economy that would protect the poorest of the poor. They blasted the king, blasted forced labor and the cash economy as an unjust system that took advantage of the poor. Out of this economic and spiritual crisis grew the concept of loan forgiveness. It began with a series of seven-year sabbaticals. Every seven years, there was a time of rest for the economy and the land, culminating in the end of seven seven-year cycles, ending with the 49th year. It was the high point of the sabbatical cycle. At the 50th year, there was a hard reset of the economics where all loans and debts were forgiven and people were reinstated to their lands. Uh, it's found in the book of Le Leviticus. Let me read the passage, Leviticus 25, 8-10. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. And you shall hollow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. Uh, here's a quote I found uh, that describes the significance of this uh, jubilee. Leviticus, it says, Leviticus 25 establishes the year of jubilee. A practice for ancient Israel. It was a sacred year that occurred every 50th year, following seven cycles ending in sabbatical years. The Jubilee year was a safeguard against continued slavery, proper poverty, and the accumulation of poverty into the hands of a few. The Hebrew slaves and their families 
were to be freed, debts were to be forgiven, property was to revert to its original owner, even if it had been sown only the year previously. It was a year of jubilee. You know, and the name year of jubilee, it's a great name. Jubilee! Wahoo! Whoop it up! Our loans are forgiven. We're set free from slavery. We're returned to our homes and homeland. You know, of course, you might have died before the 50-year cycle, but your family could return. It was a great and freeing celebration, the year of Jubilee. All right, mini lecture over. Now, how does all this apply to our current student loan forgiveness? Um, Many people of the religious persuasion of all the blogs that I've been reading and the podcasts I've been listening to, people have been referring to the year of Jubilee as the theological justification for student loan forgiveness. What do you think? So here's my thought. I think if you go back to the pinchers that the Israelite farmer faced, the forced work and the forced taxes, then maybe there's something you can apply here to young adults. For young adults with student loans, do they face a huge burden with work that doesn't support the repayment of loans plus the ability to make a living wage? You know, I know many young adults are in this category. They struggle to make ends meet. Their student loans and the area of study that they chose didn't create a work career that would allow for repayment and economic security. Catch that? For these people, I agree that the loan forgiveness should apply. The prophet Amos would agree. But on the other hand, I also know of many young adults who at the age of 30 make way more than I do at the age of 63 with two advanced degrees. You know, I'd say that for these young adults in the higher income bracket, they're not facing the pinchers. They're able to carry their debt burden. They're able to make a living wage and enjoy their life. For them, I would say the ability to repay the loans and economic security, I would say the year of Jubilee doesn't apply. They should continue to pay their loan and also practice generosity for those in a lower economic situation. Now, it's important to note that the year of Jubilee didn't make the distinction I just made. It was for literally anybody and everybody. And so that's one of the arguments as far as why the year of Jubilee would apply to everybody, even though I make the distinction between the two. You know, when I was thinking about it, when I was putting together the podcast, I was thinking the sense of economic justice that the prophets of the Hebrew Bible were referring to and the year of Jubilee, I think it fits better with the recession of 2008, where hundreds of thousands of people were losing their homes, their jobs, and their economic security. You know, I can see the prophet Amos outraged at that. Hundreds of thousands were forced with loan foreclosure, bankruptcy, and the challenge they had to begin all over again in their lives. I think if there was ever a true economic justification for the year of Jubilee, it would have been for those average homeowners in 2008 more than in student loan forgiveness here in 2022. All right, press on. That's the Hebrew Bible. What does the New Testament have to say about student loan debt forgiveness? You know, I've read where some people have referred to the Lord's Prayer where Jesus forgave us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But <laughs> when I read that, I laughed. That doesn't hold water. As the accurate translation is, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, 
Jesus talked about giving Caesar, that which is Caesar, that which is God, to God. Um, so there's a balance. Jesus kind of recognized the need to pay taxes, but don't sacrifice what you belong to, what you owe God, to what you owe Caesar. Another interesting time, uh, interesting teaching, one time someone came to Jesus and asked him to make his brother split his inheritance with him. And Jesus said, who made me an arbitrator between you? As for you, come follow me. You know, he wasn't into the economics. He didn't want to get wrapped around the economic axle. He, uh, he wasn't going to be an economic judge. His whole uh, teaching was about the kingdom of God, and which in Jesus' mind was above and beyond the economy. I think, you know, for me, I think the closest Jesus comes is the parable of the landowner and the workers in the vineyard. The landowner pays the same wage for people who worked one hour compared to people who worked all day long. Uh, that parable always gets under the skin of people. How could Jesus pay the same amount of money to people who worked one hour versus people who worked all day long. I think a parable points to the grace of God that goes beyond our concept of fairness. God's grace is freely given to those who have labored for the kingdom of God and for those who have just joined. You know, I think you can extrapolate and say that God's grace and compassion should be equally distributed to all people. It's freely given to those of us who are old and have participated in the kingdom of God for our whole lives, as well as for young people who have just joined the kingdom of God. I think it's a, a, a parable of justice and fairness. What about the notion of Jesus teaching on personal forgiveness of sins and wrongdoings? Is there a way that uh, this can be extrapolated into financial forgiveness? You know, I read an author trying to make that point. Um, personally, I think this applies to a personal loan between two people. The whole notion of forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of loans. If a person loans money to a friend or a relative and their relationship is, uh, is, is put at jeopardy, then I think the concept of forgiveness can apply. Because I don't think Jesus would want a financial loan to get in the way of a personal relationship with a family member, with a friend, with a child, so that in the same way we might forgive sins of a family member or a friend or a child, then we would be called upon to maybe think about forgiving a loan, forgiving a debt, so that our personal relationship would not be sacrificed. You know, for me, I go to the sense of economic justice that the entire Bible calls for, where all people should have equal access to the bounty of God's table. Christians are called to work to ensure that all people, regardless of race, religion, nationality, gender, or political persuasion, everybody is able to have food, water, shelter, and economic stability to ensure they will prosper in life. If student loan debt is unjustly being foisted upon young people, then people of faith should be the first to step up and advocate for their burden to be eased. You know, I think this is a huge one for me. So, okay, really, um, since I paid off my loans and I worked hard to do it, since my parents paid off their lo my loan, they worked hard to do it, there's a part of me that says, come on, young people, step up to the plate 
and pay the loan. But I have to take all things into consideration and say that the prophet Amos would want me to think about the debt burden. If the debt burden is getting in the way of them from having a meaningful, successful life, then we should think about ways to work with that debt burden to ease the pain economically that they might be feeling. You know, uh, I also find it disconcerting um, that this is kind of broken into an age discrimination. You have older people like myself, 63, judging a younger generation. Uh, there's an attitude that I said, I like, you know, I paid off my student loans. Why shouldn't they have to pay off their own? I think this is dangerous to set. There's an already enough that sets the generations off from one another. Let's not make student loan debt one more thing to kind of divide us between, you know, boomer generation and millennial generation. You know, and having weighed all this out, I think there's a greater problem that needs to be addressed. And that is the price of going to college. The cost of college tuition has spiked 1,200% over the past 40 years versus 236% for inflation. Now, both those numbers are stunning. College, 1,200% over the last 40 years. Inflation, 236%. So we need to ask why college has gone beyond, way beyond the average cost of inflation. I was listening to... Um, the daily podcast today, excuse me, <clears throat> the daily podcast today by the New York Times. They did a special feature on why colleges are so expensive. I found it fascinating. The guy had written a book about the cost of colleges, and he was saying that there's several things. He said, you know, parents and students are demanding new buildings, new gymnasium, new fields, new dormitories new classrooms, and so they're having to build and build and build and build to meet the demands and expectations of their clientele. So that adds to the expense. It adds to the expense of uh, professors and teachers and personnel. They have to pay their overhead to keep their buildings running and maintained. Uh, they have to compete with other colleges. I mean, all these different things drive the prices up. And then by the actually, but by the end of the podcast uh, today, I thought to myself, yeah, it still doesn't account for a 1,200% increase uh, in college tuition. And on Sunday, I was talking in my life group uh, about the college tuition, and one member talked about the fact that the president of Purdue, he was a graduate of Purdue, the president of Purdue has been there 11 years, 12 years, for the past 11 years has not raised tuition one iota, and yet the quality of education has stayed the same and has increased enrollment. And I want to know, maybe we ought to get what he's doing and put it out there so other people can learn from one college university who is succeeding at not raising rates. You know, as a person of faith, I always want to err on the side of compassion. My sense of economic justice rises, I get just, my justice gets concerned when I see young people saddled with a debt far greater than they ever will be able to repay. If their debt, I've said this a couple times, I'm going to say it again, if their debt is keeping them from a just life of economic stability, then my faith in Christ tells me I should be advocating for this policy of student loan forgiveness. 
However, here's my other side. If young people earn an income that allow for their economic stability, then I also believe in a sense of responsibility to pay the loan. So there you go. Right in the middle on both sides. All right. Um, how can we allow the prophet of the Hebrew Bible to speak to us? You know, I believe that the Hebrew Bible, that's why I don't like calling it the Old Testament. I believe I call it the Hebrew Bible because there's nothing old about it. It's vital and alive. Uh, it should speak to us into the gray areas of our lives today. And there's a, a lot of gray issues like the student loans has a lot of gray. People are split all over the place. You know, my greatest hope is that if you are a person of faith, that you will allow your spiritual values to guide and inform you on a social issue such as this. Stay out of the black and white Go into the areas of the gray. Allow the prophet to drive you into the area of the gray. Truth is always found as we wade through the gray. So one place my faith brings me that I'm not going to say because I work to pay off my loan. They should have to pay off their loan. I recognize every situation is different. You know, the cost of college for me back in 1977 was 1,200% less than it is now. It costs young people way more to get an education than it did when I was going to school. So, where does this bring us? Where do you stand? My faith uh, lands me smack dab in the middle, and I'm willing to walk in the gray. I'm going to go for justice. I'm going to go for compassion. But I also believe in economic responsibility. So we've got to rein in college costs. I think it's a multifaceted issue. But I do believe our faith does speak to issues such as this. All right. I think that's enough for today. I'm right at 30 minutes. So I'm going to end. I can't thank you enough for listening and following the podcast. Get the word out. Tell your friends about it. Give me, as I said, give me some ideas of things that you'd like me to cover. Uh, also look for my blog, uh, Cowboy Jesus. It's published at the end of the week. Uh, you can sign up for that uh, my blog on Blogspot. You can also find it on Facebook. I'm on Rev Steve Poos Benson and Dr. Steve Poos Benson and Columbine United Church's Facebook page. I also do a Wednesday shout-out, a quick midweek spiritual boost. You can find that on my Facebook page as well. All right, 5,000 downloads. That's pretty exciting. All right, take care, and until the next episode, we'll see you. Bye.